You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the Rand Corporation. I'm Deanna Lee. And I'm Evan Banks. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from Rand's latest research and commentary. It's October 30th. Imagine a scenario in the future in which a safe and effective vaccine for COVID-19 is available. But instead of coordinating to ensure global access to the vaccine, countries are pushing to get a supply for themselves first by signing deals directly with pharmaceutical companies. Some countries are even hoarding components that are essential for vaccine production. This describes vaccine nationalism. It's the subject of a new Rand Europe study, which finds that such nationalistic behavior could cost the world up to $1.2 trillion per year in GDP. Why is the potential cost so high? Because countries would incur economic penalties for the global population and for themselves if they initially immunize only their own citizens. And even if only the lowest-income countries were denied equal access to a vaccine and all other countries managed to immunize their populations, it could still cost the global economy $153 billion a year. That's because, as long as the virus is not under control in all regions, there will continue to be a global cost associated with COVID-19. Okay, so what about global coordination? Well, our study shows that there are economic incentives for countries to work together. For example, for every dollar spent to supply lower-income countries with vaccines, high-income countries would get back about $4.80. Lead author Marco Hafner sums it up this way, quote, A globally coordinated, multilateral effort to fight the pandemic is key, not only from a public health perspective, but also an economic one. In May and June, Rand conducted a survey to learn more about Americans' views on voting during a pandemic. We talked about the findings from that survey in an earlier episode of the show, and now we have a quick update. In August, Rand researchers followed up with some of the same Americans they surveyed earlier in the summer. Had their views about voting and about election safety and integrity changed? Overall, there were small changes. For example, the percentage of people who said that they expected to be safe from threats to their physical health when voting fell slightly between the first survey and August, from 62% to 60%, a small but statistically significant drop. There was also a slight decrease in the percentage of respondents who said that they expect their vote to be counted correctly, from 59% in May and June to 54% in August. Finally, there were modest shifts in whether and how people intended to vote. Although a record-breaking number of Americans have already taken advantage of early voting options, the authors note that some voters' intentions may change right up to Election Day, which, of course, is just a few days away. In the mid-1970s, what some call a quiet revolution transformed women's labor in the U.S., Women began making employment decisions for themselves, they pursued careers, and their work became part of their identity. According to Rand's Catherine Edwards, the pandemic has dealt a blow to that identity. Between August and September of this year, 865,000 women left the U.S. labor force. 
Of course, some reduction in workforce participation is expected during a recession like the one we're living through. But the concern is that women aren't simply sitting out of a difficult job market. Rather, the need for caregiving as schools and daycares close may be pushing women out. The declines in labor force participation were particularly significant among women with two children in the household and women with children ages two to six. Edwards says it will likely take years to recover from these declines, and things could get worse before they get better. Women may be afraid to take time off, unable to take time off, work less, or receive promotions less. All of these factors could contribute to the increase in the gender earnings gap that will likely result from the recession. So it may be up to public and corporate policies to change to ensure that working women get the support that they have long deserved but have gone without. And if those changes don't come, then the next women's labor revolution will have to be much, much louder than it was in the 70s, says Edwards. Deciding when automated vehicles are safe enough to hit the road is not straightforward, especially because AV technology is constantly evolving. A new RAND report examines this challenge, assessing the measurements, processes, and thresholds used to determine AV safety. The authors conclude that there is no single best approach. Rather, evidence from a variety of sources needs to be pieced together to understand whether AVs are acceptably safe. For instance, in the absence of abundant crash data, because automated vehicles aren't out on the roads yet, we need alternatives to the statistical measures that are typically used to determine the safety of conventional cars. But these measures can't stand alone. They must be combined with information about AV companies' safety processes, especially how developers implement technical standards and how thoroughly companies embrace safety. There's also a need to understand how well AVs compare to human drivers. As you can see, it's complicated. And that's why, according to study lead Marjorie Blumenthal, a consensus where developers, regulators, and policymakers agree both on a set of approaches to evaluate safety and how to effectively communicate about those approaches will be essential to nurturing public trust in AVs. And if the promise of these vehicles is going to be met, then getting consumers on board will be imperative. In a report out this week, Rand's Rafiq Dasani examines Americans' historical inability to engage North Korea in denuclearization talks and charts an alternate path forward. First, he identifies three primary reasons for past U.S. failures. Disagreements on the goals of negotiations, inadequate domestic and international support, and the failure to use trust-building mechanisms. Dosani then outlines a new approach, the portfolio method. The key elements of this approach include involving countries with national interests that overlap with those of Washington and Pyongyang, reaching agreement on what the goals of negotiation are before talks begin, and linking together multiple areas of negotiation. Dosani notes that some of these elements were present in earlier negotiations between the U.S. and North Korea, but the portfolio method would improve the likelihood of success because it brings together different elements to comprehensively address the reasons for past failures. 
So this approach could offer new hope for a way forward on North Korean denuclearization. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. For more on what we covered this week, check the show notes at rand.org slash podcast. We'll see you next week.